and welcome to Grand Final History. I'm Kieran McGee, and in this episode, we go back to 1900, the fourth season of the VFL, where Fitzroy were looking to achieve a hat-trick of premierships to reinforce their claim to be the VFL's original powerhouse team. The year 1900 was seen as the end of the 19th century. Unlike the year 2000 celebrations a hundred years later that were commonly seen to kick off the new millennium, our ancestors were technically correct to wait until 1901 to celebrate the start of the 20th century. 1900 also saw the start of construction of Flinders Street Station. As we will see, trains and public transport were critical for players and supporters in a time before the rise of the motor car. And on the 5th of July, following all of the work and referendums in each colony over the previous few years, the Commonwealth of Australia Constitution Act, UK, was passed in London. Britain had given their permission for Australia to be a country, albeit still closely tied to the British Empire. 1900 also saw the second modern Olympic Games held in Paris. Curiously, the modern Olympics and the VFL, or AFL, are almost the same age, though only one has been successful in gaining worldwide attention. A VFL player, Dave Strickland, from St Kilda, won the stalwart gift. Strickland would also become the father of Olympic champion Shirley Strickland. Dave was unable to compete at the 1900 Olympic Games because he lacked the money to fund a trip to Paris. Instead, he directed his efforts to Victoria's stalwart gift and won the race. If we look at what people were saying about the VFL in early 1900, it was the structure of the VFL season and the process for deciding the premiership that continued to be criticised in the press and raised at VFL meetings. The fact that South Melbourne had made the playoff for premiership in the previous season when finishing sixth out of eight teams did not sit well with many observers and participants of the VFL. In March, the Argus reported on a VFL meeting where South Melbourne proposed that the premiership be awarded at the end of 14 home and away rounds. Then, a second competition for a charity cup, or whatever name could be decided, could be played. This was criticised at the meeting as it would create two premierships per season, and besides, the current system was working well. After lengthy discussion, the proposal was referred back to a subcommittee. In April, the VFL held its annual general meeting, and the President, Mr Alex McCracken, made it clear that the system for deciding the premierships was such a success there was no need for change. The AGM also addressed the pressing issue of player uniforms. This clearly needed attention. It should be forcibly brought under the notice of club's executives the fact that many players go onto the field not clad in the proper uniform. The incongruous sight is often observed of players of clubs whose colours are blue and white wearing red caps, or the red, white and blue caps. More often, some disreputable slouch hat further and under Guernsey, peeping out of various hues, altogether out of harmony. Your committee would earnestly recommend that steps be taken to have the law changed in respect to proper uniforms being strictly carried out. Despite the VFL's official position, there continued to be calls in the press for alternate options for deciding the premiership. For example, Markwell and the Australasian proposed that after the end of the home and away season, the top four teams would play out the finals process to decide the premiership. However, to maintain interest and revenue for the other clubs, the top four VFA teams would play off against the bottom four VFL teams for a charity shield, with some of the proceeds going to selected charities, 
While this proposal did not succeed, I am sure that Mark Wall would be pleased to see that some of his other proposals, such as a call for stricter application of the deliberate out-of-bounds rule, has eventually been implemented. Any suggestion that umpires do not allow themselves to be hoodwinked into playing free kicks to players that throw up his arms and executes a ludicrously dramatic fall is applicable now over 120 years after he made the case. There are many common themes within the early years of the VFL and today's modern game. However, there are some significant differences in footy culture of those early years. It was an intensely local game. Unlike today, where players are recruited from across the nation and games played in every state and territory, and even overseas. In the VFL's early years, teams got most of their players from their suburb or adjoining suburbs. Players and supporters generally either walked or used public transport to get to the games. Fitness and training were not the priority that they are now. Games were played in a more stop-start fashion, and once a team had a lead, they often went defensive, concentrating on keeping the ball in a non-scoring pocket or moving it out of bounds. Low scores were also due to the grounds being muddy and in a poor state. Without the modern drainage and other advantages, the suburban grounds of the time could be a quagmire for much of the season. There would even be postponement of one round in season 1900 due to the poor condition of the grounds. The VFL was supposed to be an amateur competition at this stage, with player payments not being approved to 1911. Follower, writing in the leader at the start of the 1900 season, pointed out that the players playing for the love of the game, rather than money, had seen an improvement in the tone of the game. But he made it clear that this was due to clubs not having funds due to low gate takings compared to previous years. It would seem that the economic downturn and the collapse of the banks and businesses of the late 1890s were still having a dampening effect on club finances. As followers said, it is merely good coming out of evil. He could see that the clubs would likely return to paying money and the problems that this would cause if club finances allowed it, given the number of times that VFL clubs teetered on or fell into insolvency in subsequent decades leader clearly knew something of the type of people that would go into club management. Women were also attending football games in those early years. Some reports say that women and men would sit in different sections, women and children closer to the fence or in a separate pavilion. Collingwood opened a separate pavilion for women who made up one third of their membership base. It was a cheap £80 shed but it kept the women dry and helped build the membership base. It is worth noting though that when you do look at photos of these early games, there seems to be plenty of women sitting with the men. Season 1900 would open on Saturday the 5th of May. So far, in the three completed seasons since the start of the VFL, St Kilda had not won a single match. Not in 48 games. But when the bell rang to end their round one clash with Melbourne, they had finally achieved a draw. Yet, in the forerunner of the Siren Gate scandal of 2008, round five, St Kilda versus Fremantle, where the umpires did not hear the siren at York Park, this 1900 season opener result was also to be overturned when the officials met during the week after the game. It was agreed by both teams and the umpire that a mark had been awarded to a Melbourne player after the bell rang to end the third quarter, and the point that that Melbourne player kicked should not count to Melbourne's score. St Kilda were awarded their first win by one point over Melbourne. It would be their only victory for the entire season. Fitzroy were also defeated in round one, going down to their bitter rivals, Collingwood. However, the Maroons would go on to win 11 of the 14 home and away games 
to top the ladder and win the minor premiership. Round three games were postponed until the end of the home and away season because the grounds were too muddy. Round five saw the start of a struggle that would play out for the rest of the season, see threats of legal action and the potential forfeit of a sectional game, the resignation of club president and fines issued by the league. It all started when South Melbourne denied Geelong women members free admittance. Geelong reciprocated by refusing all visiting memberships free admission when South Melbourne visited Corio for the return game. The VFL said Geelong owed South Melbourne £6 one shilling, which Geelong refused to pay. The VFL then fined Geelong an additional £20, which Geelong declared they would ignore. Geelong were talking up court action, claiming they were in the right. However, the league held firm, threatening to force Geelong to forfeit its sectional game. Eventually, Geelong's president, McMullen, resigned, South were paid the money owed to them, and the £20 fine was paid to the league. While the league had shown its authority over the clubs, the fine was actually refunded to Geelong at the September meeting of the VFL. This was also the first of many VFL seasons to be played during a time of war. The Boer War had begun in late 1899, and Victoria, along with other colonies, had rallied to the Empire and committed troops to the conflict. Several VFL players would serve, some losing their lives. As well as players joining the fight against the Boers, some journalists also travelled to South Africa. One of these was Donald MacDonald, who wrote under the nom de plume of Observer for the Argus. We will hear more about Observer in later episodes. In May, the relief of Mafeking ended a seven-month siege in the town of Mafeking held by the British, and this was celebrated with a special holiday on Wednesday, May 23rd, adjoining the scheduled Queen's birthday holiday of May 24th. Collingwood and Essendon played on May 23rd, Collingwood with Union Jacks sewn onto the back of their jumpers. The next day, being the Queen's birthday, saw Fitzroy players run out with a tricolour slash and rosettes on their jumper, but these were removed before the start of play. At each of the Queen's birthday games, the crowds gave three cheers and sang God Save the Queen. The dream of many spectators to be called up to play for their club came true for a couple of Essendon supporters in Round 7 on the 9th of June. A spate of nine injured players found Essendon desperate for numbers in their game against Collingwood. The club secretary, William Cribben, played his first game since 1896. Hugh Johns, an Essendon supporter, through thick and thin, was plucked from the crowd and kicked two goals. A junior, called Healy, also volunteered his services and showed some dash on the wing, according to the Argus, until his condition failed him. Needless to say, despite these efforts, Collingwood had an easy win. In July, there was a bye, and a VFL team travelled to Adelaide to play a combined South Australian team. A year earlier, at the intercolonial game at the MCG, the Victorians wore Melbourne jumpers, but this time, the Victorians had a blue jumper with a gold sash. Clearly, the big V was yet to come. The Victorians won 9 goals 10 to South Australia's 5-12. The Adelaide Chronicle considered the VFL team to be far superior in terms of skill and discipline. There is one more story about season 1900 before we get to the sectionals and the finals, especially for Collingwood supporters and those worried about a decline in the respect for umpires in recent years. Dick Condon was one of Collingwood's best players and was made captain halfway through season 1900. However, he must have been an intense character and clearly did not like umpires. After a game against South Melbourne that Collingwood lost by two points, Condon was suspended for three weeks for constant swearing at the umpire. Two weeks later, whilst still suspended, 
he got into a fistfight with teammate Arthur Robinson in the middle of Collingwood's three-quarter time huddle. The pair had to be restrained by the umpires, teammates and Collingwood club officials. In the sectional game, Collingwood versus Geelong Cario, Condon walked off the field and demanded that his teammates withdraw from the game because of the poor umpiring. Collingwood's committee members ordered him back on the ground to defend their one-point lead, but Collingwood would not score and Geelong kicked two goals to win the game. Clearly, no one would suggest a walk-off is an appropriate strategy, but perhaps the umpiring was less than ideal. The Age on Monday, September 3rd, said, As an umpire, Gibson was a failure. Even from a Geelong point of view, he was not a success. It was not that he was partial, but he seemed insufficient. The final straw was in the Collingwood-Melbourne sectional game. Condon told well-respected umpire Ivo Crap, Your girl's a bloody whore! This time, he was suspended for life. The story of this curious man does not end there. There were three appeals over 18 months, and eventually Condon returned to the field in 1902. I wonder what umpire Ivo Krepp thought about that. Perhaps Condon's attitude to umpires changed, or maybe he believed that he could do better, because in 1907 he actually spent a season in Tasmania as an umpire. His football travels were not over, though. He went to Richmond in 1908 as coach when they first entered the VFL. However, his abrasive character caused so much discontent at Richmond that he was asked to leave at the end of 1909. For all of his abrasiveness, he was a champion football. In 1935, the Sporting Globe declared the high-marking and skilful magpie the greatest footballer of the century, underlining the regard in which the VFL community held him. At the end of the Home and Away series, Fitzroy were on top of the ladder, two games clear of second-place Geelong, and three games ahead of Essendon and Collingwood making up the top four. The sectional system meant that Group A consisted of Fitzroy, Essendon, South Melbourne and Carlton, while Group B held Geelong, Collingwood, Melbourne and St Kilda. Melbourne had finished the season in sixth place with only six wins. In round one of the sectionals, there was a major upset when the lowly Melbourne Futures beat Geelong at the East Melbourne Cricket Ground. Melbourne had played a lacklustre losing game against Carlton the week before, but came out a different team against the Pivotonians. The other matches went as expected, but Collingwood would regret that they defeated St Kilda by only 57 points, 8 goals 20, to 0 goals 9 behinds. The second round of the sectional series saw Essendon become the only undefeated team in Group A when they beat top-of-the-ladder Fitzroy. The same olds straight at kicking, getting them home 6 goals 3 to the Maroons 5 goals 6. Essendon had led 3 goals 1 to 0 at quarter time, so it was a good comeback by Fitzroy, but not enough to win. In Group B, Geelong defeated Collingwood to get their first win, and Melbourne had a big win against St Kilda at the Junction Oval, despite some inaccurate kicking and some rain falling during the afternoon. St Kilda had not scored a single point for the first three quarters, but managed to kick their entire score in the fourth quarter, after the game was already decided. Melbourne, 12 goals 14, to St Kilda, 2 goals 3. In the final rounds of the sectionals, Essendon beat Carlton to remain the only undefeated team in Group A, thus qualifying for the playoff game. Fitzroy had an easy win over South Melbourne to ensure they qualified to challenge whoever won the playoff game. This also meant they had a week off to recover, but I'm sure they would have preferred to be at the top of their group. Things were more complex in Group B, where it was possible for Melbourne, Collingwood or Geelong to top the table. Geelong beat St Kilda, 
but unlike the previous sectional games, St Kilda was competitive. And while not beating Geelong, St Kilda helped shape the result because Geelong were not able to boost their percentage and could not pass Melbourne on the sectional ladder. Collingwood did their part by defeating Melbourne by one goal in a low-scoring game, four goals six to three goals six. Perhaps Melbourne were happy to play a defensive game knowing that they had the better percentage. So after three sectional rounds where Melbourne, Geelong and Collingwood all had two wins, it was Melbourne's better percentage that saw them top the sectional ladder. So Melbourne would play Essendon in a playoff game and the winner of that would play for the premiership against Fitzroy who had the challenge. The playoff game was held at South Melbourne's Lakeside Oval after the VFL had received tenders from a number of venues. Melbourne had lost Dan Moriarty, who had been suspended after the game against Collingwood. To replace him, the Fuchsias brought Mori Herring down from Maryborough. Herring had played for Melbourne in the previous seasons, but had moved to Maryborough in 1900. But he was brought back for this game at least. The game started at 2.30 on Saturday the 15th of September in front of 13,000 people. Things started badly for Essendon when New Haven Jackson went off the ground with a leg injury less than 10 minutes from the start. This meant that Essendon played with 17 men. Jackson had come into the game under an injury cloud and the fears were justified. He would not be the last player to go into a final less than fully fit. When it works, the player is a hero. When it doesn't, everyone says, never select an injured player. Melbourne were the better team for most of the day and Essendon did not help themselves with inaccurate kicking. However, Essendon had one more chance before the end of the last quarter. Towards the end of the game, Essendon were only five points behind and Captain George Stuckey marked grandly close to the goal and turned round to take a shot. But he was so close to the goals, he mistook where he was standing, confused the point post with the goal post and kicked a point. The sportsman reported, When he noticed the error, he flung his arms about and tore his hair and from the press box looked like a man who was saying words which are supposed to ease one's feelings under such circumstances. If you want to see how a player can mistake the points for the goals, check out YouTube to see Malcolm Blight, who was also playing as captain coach against Richmond at the MCG in round 14, 1981. He may have also said a few of the same words as George Stuckey to help ease one's feelings under such circumstances. Back to the playoff game. Melbourne were defending fiercely, but Essendon were pushing forward. The same olds had one more shot at goal. To read from the Argus is the best way to finish the game. There was a shout and tremendous cheering as the long kick of Hiskins flew high over the posts. Essendon's men danced with glee. But to everyone's surprise, only one flag was raised. Crap, the central umpire thought it was a goal and so did many of the Melbourne players. But the goal umpire's decision is final and it was against Hiskins. With only a minute to play, Thurgood had another shot and Hiskins marked right at the behind post as the bell rang. The Rutherglen men placed carefully at a nasty angle and took his shot. It missed the goal, and Melbourne had won by two points after the most exciting match of the year. The final scores, Melbourne 7-3-45, to Essendon 5 goals 13-43. Melbourne had come from six to have the right to play the minor premiers Fitzroy to be acclaimed premiers for the final year of the 19th century. Unlike previous years, there was far more planning regarding the venue. The league met on the Saturday evening after the playoff final and selected the centrally located East Melbourne Cricket Ground for the Premiership game. Ticket sales were set up at several locations in the city, North Melbourne, Fitzroy, etc. 
in the week and on the Saturday morning before the game to ease crushing at the gates. And here we have the first evidence of pre-game entertainment for a grand final match, kicking off a tradition that will have many highlights, if that's the right word, including Angry Anderson in the Batmobile at VFL Park and Meatloaf at the MCG. It all started way back in 1900 with a baseball match between South Melbourne and East Melbourne at 1pm before the main game scheduled to start punctually at 3pm. The Geelong committee decided to give their players a trip to Melbourne to witness the Premiership and a special train left Geelong at 1pm to return shortly before midnight. A large number of lovers of football joined them. The umpire for this, as for the previous Premiership matches, was the leading umpire of the day, Ivo Crap. Fitzroy was again led by Alex Sloan for the third Premiership playoff in a row. He would end up playing 66 games from 1897 to 1902 and also played for Victoria against South Australia in 1900. Melbourne's captain was Dick Wardle, who played 64 games and scored 36 goals from 1897 to 1902. Reported to be a daring and talented follower who could produce brilliant football, even though inclined to hold on to the ball for too long. He also played for Victoria against South Australia in 1900. The grand final crowd was 20,181 people, which is more than 4% of the entire population of Melbourne at the time. In the first quarter, after some behinds had been scored by both teams, Lou Barker scored the first goal of the day for Fitzroy. The game was hard fought with high marking from both teams. Melbourne got their first goal after centre-half forward Jack Leith took a fine mark and kicked Trawley. Shortly afterwards, Fitzroy had another shot on goal, but Jeff Moriarty, who was playing a fine game at fullback, stopped it right in front of the goal. The ball was sent back to Melbourne's forward line, and Tommy Ryan pounced on the ball and, from Melbourne's forward pocket, got their second goal. The bell rang before Fitzroy could respond, and the quarter-time scores were two goals three to one goal four in Melbourne's favour. In the second quarter, Fitzroy started with an irresistible dash, and one of the leading players, Mick Grace, took a clever mark and scored the Maroons' second goal. An answering rally by Melbourne gave Fred McGuinness a chance, but he missed, only scoring a behind to level the scores. The remainder of the second quarter saw a flurry of behinds scored by both teams. When the half-time bell rang, the scoreboard read Melbourne 2 goals 5, 17 points, trailing Fitzroy 2 goals 7 behinds, 19 points. Despite finishing a long way ahead in the regular season, Fitzroy knew they had a fight on their hands for the Premiership. The third quarter saw some of the best football for the season, but the honours were to Melbourne. Melbourne's captain, Dick Wardle, was playing an extremely clever, hard and useful game and got his reward in the shape of a goal, which was hailed with some great cheering. Melbourne's full forward, Stuart Geddes, was awarded a free kick some 40 yards out and with a magnificent drop kick scored Melbourne's fourth goal, sending their supporters almost wild with delight. Melbourne had a 12-point lead and their defenders were able to repel the numerous forward attacks of the talented Fitzroy team. It was a veritable battle of the titans and the vigour of the attack and the strength of the defence roused the spectators' enthusiasm. As reported by the Argus, from the cracked voice of the veteran to the stentorian tones of the man and down again to the piping treble of the youngster with here and there the dulcet tones of one of the softer sex. Added to the changing expressions of exultation or dismay on the various faces as first one side and then the other prevailed. The bell rang for three-quarter time, and Melbourne had done all the scoring. Melbourne four goals, eight behinds, 32 points, to Fitzroy two goals, seven behinds, 19 points. The final quarter started, and it seemed Fitzroy were going to do what was expected, but they continued to miss the goals. 
Behinds were scored by Keenan and then by Grace. Then Melbourne's fullback Eddie Skoll had a terrible kick, sending it straight to Keenan, 25 yards in front. But again, Melbourne had a let-off as another point was added to the score. This time, the ball was cleared from the Melbourne back line and into their forwards. Melbourne full forward Vic Cumberland had his chance, but it was only a minor score added to the total. It seemed, despite the week off, it was the Maroons that were tiring as the game drew closer to the finish. After a couple of more points for each team, Mick Grace gave the Fitzroy supporters hope again, scoring a clever goal from an angle. With about four minutes to go, Melbourne led by just five points. The Maroons attacked again and again, but were sent back by the red-leg defenders. Then Fitzroy's half-forward flanker, Lou Barker, had a running shot at goal and missed, scoring a behind. Almost immediately the bell rang and Melbourne were premiers by four points. Melbourne, four goals, ten behinds, 34, to Fitzroy. Three goals, 12 behinds, 30 points. It was the biggest upset of the VFL's short history. Fitzroy was so confident they had booked and advertised a victory dinner dance. They had even organised special wagons decked out in team colours with Fitzroy Premiers 1900 on banners waiting outside the ground to carry the players to the dinner. Melbourne had their celebrations in the dressing rooms because they had not organised a thing. There was grace in defeat though. Fitzroy's captain Alex Sloan visited the Melbourne dressing rooms after the game and declared that next to Fitzroy he would sooner see Melbourne Premiers than any other club. And, as the AFL continues to deal with the challenges of managing crowds in our modern times, they might like to reflect on what the Australasian thought about the spectators at the grand final. The playoff for the Premiership was in every respect a triumph. It brought together the finest assemblage seen for many years, and the crowd, composed largely not of hoodlums and barrackers, but of the reputable and better class of citizens, had presented to them such an exposition of the game as must have filled them with satisfaction. It was a great occasion that marked a thorough revival of the public interest in football. And while the term grand final was not yet common, the Weekly Times almost got the term going in their review of the game. And an exciting ending to the season, and this football year closed with what theatrical people call a grand rallying finale. In the reviews of the season, the common theme was the recognition of Melbourne's achievement in winning the Premiership, given the system in use, but a unanimous view that the system was flawed. There would be changes in the coming year, but we will deal with those in later episodes. Also of interest was a list of Premiership teams published in the Argus on the Monday after the Premiership match. It listed the Premiers and the second and third teams starting in 1870 through to 1900. While it mentioned that the VFL was set up in 1897, there was no distinction between those Premierships and the ones preceding. And while many players from Fitzroy and Melbourne would go on to have prominent roles in society, we should mention in Melbourne's Premiership halfback flanker, William McClellan, who would go on to be VFL president from 1926 to 1955, as well as president of the Melbourne Cricket Club from 1944 to 57. The team, the top selector in the AFL home and away season, is now awarded the McClellan Trophy named in his honour. Join me next time as we explore season 1901, the start of the 20th century, and see what changes are implemented to the final system, and whether Fitzroy will redeem themselves after their premiership shock, or would Melbourne carry on for another year. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts from. It will help others to find it. If you have any questions or want to leave feedback, 
please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au and check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or our Facebook page and Twitter accounts. Thanks, and I hope you join me next time. <laughs>